Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Keith Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when I was working for a Protestant pastor as a, an, an intern, an assistant in, in the office, helping him with his stuff day to day, and he asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that question led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, the history of Christianity, uh, what tradition was, how it intersected and uh, connected with what I believe to be the root of Christianity, which was, of course, the, the Bible. And from there, I began to read, for the very first time, the Catholic Church in its own words. It's part of a massive study of church history and different aspects and branches of Christianity. And there it was, looming large. And it was then, for the first time that I realized what I thought I knew about the Catholic faith and Catholics, was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what do you think Catholics believe, and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic thinker talking about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by Dr. Samuel Klumpenhauer to talk about the what medieval Catholicism, what medieval Christianity actually looked like, what it, what it really looked like. Because this is one of those, I think, big topic, big picture misconceptions that I certainly had as an evangelical, and I began to read from the history of the church, from medieval history uh, up to the Reformation and beyond, and encounter what I think Samuel is here to talk about this week, which is that what we think we know about the state of the medieval Catholic Church is really based on some misconceptions and, and digging deeper into the, the daily lives, the, the day-to-day life, the, the work being done in, in the schools uh, by theologians, by those talking and, and digging deeply into the Bible in the tradition of the church with the early church fathers right there at hand. Well, it's a very different picture than I certainly had, and maybe you did too. Well, that's this week on the show. This conversation and others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to keep this show going and growing week after week, so thank you for your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support in prayer, and thank you for your financial giving as well. Those who are already doing that, thank you so much, guys. Anyone else, those links are in the show notes, and thanks for listening. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Samuel Klumpenhauer on what did the medieval Catholic Church really look like. Please listen and enjoy. Friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for watching. If you are listening on podcast, thank you for listening there. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, if you can hit the uh, subscribe button and leave a rating or a review, that helps to push the podcast out to more listeners and reach more people with conversations like this fantastic one coming up today. If you are watching on YouTube, thank you for watching. Please help us to grow this channel. Uh, slowly but surely, it's getting there with your help. So please do subscribe to the channel, hit the bell, like this video and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy this conversation. Guys, I am joined this week by Dr. Samuel Kloppenheimer. Uh, It's going to be, why did I say Kloppenheimer? I just, 
<laughs> that is not his name, Samuel Klumpenhauer. Uh, he has a PhD in medieval studies from the University of Toronto up here in Canada, a fellow Canadian, so awesome conversation ahead, guys. Watch out. He has done some fantastic work uh, translating some medieval theological texts, including the Glossa Ordinaria. I don't think I said that properly, but we'll see on Genesis, recently out from uh, Emmaus Road, the St. Paul Center for Biblical Studies. An awesome uh, medieval text. Bring it uh, for us to read. That's awesome. A number of other uh, things he is working on, including some commentaries and other things he can tell us about as well, because I... (laughs) I don't, I, I'm, I'm lost here in my intro, as sometimes happens on this show. Samuel, I am thrilled to have you on the show, a fellow Canadian, a fellow convert to the Catholic faith. I want to ask about that to begin with, but awesome conversation up ahead. I'm thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show, and hello. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Oh, thank you for being here, and thank you for suffering through my absolutely botched introduction uh, of you. I'm looking at your website in front of me. I've been reading it on and off today, looking at the awesome things you're doing, clicking on the links and checking all these things out. And it comes a time to actually synthesize that and read it. And here I am just absolutely tongue-tied over Latin uh, texts that I have no business trying to pronounce. So th- so thank you. Uh, we should just talk about who we know in, in Ontario because we, we grew up very close to one another, which is really cool. And uh, it's not a huge, I mean, it's a huge country. It's a huge province. And somehow we are both pretty close together. So I think that, that's pretty cool. But both of us grew up not Catholic. You have a conversion story. I have a conversion story. I thought to just to set the stage, this isn't the topic we're talking about today. We're talking about kind of the medieval church and some of the things, uh, the medieval Catholic church and looking into some of those things and, and kind of asking deeper questions about that through some of the work that you have done. But I thought since you, you're a convert and lots of listeners to this show are converts or looking into the Catholic faith or are new Catholics or those Catholics who want to just dig deeper into these topics, I thought maybe give us a little sneak preview, a little thumbnail sketch maybe of of how you uh, how your conversion story unfolded and what drew you into the, the Catholic Church. Because I think maybe not necessarily the topic of the medieval church, which is now your area of study, but certainly I'm going to guess because this was for me a route into the church, reading the church fathers and those kinds of things maybe drew you in. So, thumbnail sketch, what, what's your story? Sure. How, how'd you make that leap? Because listeners would love to know. So yes, I grew up in, in Canada, in Ontario, on a farm uh, near Kitchener, yeah, Kitchener-Waterloo. Cool. And uh, uh, my father was from Holland originally, and, and his family was um, Dutch Reformed, but we grew up, he had made a shift himself, and we I grew up in, in the Pentecostal church. Yes. <laughs> and a uh, small town and, and a large family. Um, my mother had 13 children and, and it was wonderful to grow up in that environment on a farm uh, in a large family. And uh, in many ways, um, my childhood was uh, idyllic. And especially now I'm a school teacher, you know, and, and whenever I tell stories of growing up on, on a farm with many siblings, my, my students, my yeah. students love to hear these because it's so different from <laughs> from most people in the world. So, so I had a a wonderful childhood and and a wonderful family I'm close with and, and very involved in, in my church, very involved in uh, youth groups and so on. After I graduated high school, I went off to uh, Alberta to a small Protestant college, Prairie Bible college in Alberta. I was there for a couple of years (laughs) (laughs) and, and loved it and, and really loved it and and made some lifelong friends and, um, mentored by some really great people. It was there, especially that I started reading uh, C.S. Lewis in depth uh, and through him, many of the people that he read, uh, Chesterton and so on. 
and I loved it. And I was not discontent at all with, with what I had inherited. Uh, it was really a, a wonderful uh, experience and wonderful upbringing. Uh, after I, so I did two years at Prayer Bible College. Then I went off to the University of Toronto, <clears throat> uh, which is set up as a as a college system similar to the universities in uh, in England. So you're not just at the University of Toronto; you're part of a college, and most of these colleges are confessional. And I happened to be accepted into the uh, the Catholic college yeah, at yeah, the University yeah. of Toronto, University of St. Michael's. Yeah. And so I was living in dorms there the first year. And I was living right beside a Catholic church, you know, about a 20 paces away. Wow. That's how close the church was. And I didn't know any Catholics growing up. I didn't really know Catholics in my first year of university. I had a couple Protestant friends who were thinking of becoming Catholic. So they'd kind of put it on my radar. It wasn't really on my radar at all. But I started going to, um, I would just sit in the back at Catholic mass and and got very interested. And so this love of of the liturgy also prompted um a love of reading at this point in time i didn't know any catholics but i started reading everything i could and generally speaking uh when i read about these various theological issues um you know the controversial ones generally about the pope or mary or so on um, when I when I actually spent the time to study what the church yeah, actually yeah. taught, to to study and understand was was normally always to agree. There were very few disagreements left after I actually understood what was being taught, and so this kind of set me on a course. You know, I I could tell there was a tra- trajectory going on, and so I went um, for a free course called RCIA. And I thought, man, this is a free course. I can learn about the church. Yeah. RCIA, okay. if your listeners don't know, is, is the course you take to, to enter the church. At that point in time, I wasn't planning to enter the church. I was just taking it as a free course. But about halfway through the course, I, I could see the trajectory I was headed. And, and, <laughs> and I made the choice wow. to, um, to put my faith in the church. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I had the awareness that to become Catholic, it wasn't really about agreeing with the church that's part of it, but it was more about um, even if there is a disagreement, are you willing to trust her judgment over your own? And I and I was willing to do that at that point in time. So, you know, after I became Catholic, I, I met a lot of Catholic friends, but uh, leading up to this, it was mostly through books. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. As if Canada isn't small enough, my wife and her family, up until very recently, her her Oma and Opa, who are, who are Dutch, uh, lived in Three Hills, Alberta, because all their family, all their kids, went, uh, her parents met at, at Prairie Bible Institute. So oh, it's, it was a great, <laughs> great two years of my life. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So we owe a lot in our family to, to Prairie and uh, and people. And you aren't actually the second convert I've met from Prairie, my, uh, Carl Olson from Ignatius Press. I had the show really? ages okay. ago went to went to Prairie back back in the day hmm. as I, well. I had no so, idea. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and, that, and, and I've interacted with them. Okay, that's yeah, neat to know. Yeah, yeah there okay. you go. You, well, you have that in common, as far as I know. That's awesome. That's a that's a great. You know what? There's there's so many. I mean, apart from all the Canadian connections that we have in common there, because uh, I know exactly what you're talking about and, and all these different things. Uh, I love that. Just so, just last week on on this show, we talked about. I had my friend Taylor Scroll from Forte Catholic on talk about how bad RCIA. 
can can be. So I'm glad for you the experience didn't turn you off uh, becoming Catholic. But but, but it, it was a pretty good program. It, it was done through the university, so yeah, yeah. there were plenty of kind of professors <laughs> from the university that that could teach teach well. And so I was fortunate. Yeah. I was one of the fortunate ones. That, that's great. And I'm glad experiences vary. And and of course in our conversation, uh, Taylor and I, we realized yes, this is this is the case. There are some fantastic programs. Unfortunately, there are some really terrible ones too. So I'm glad mm-hmm. your experience was was great. That's fantastic. That that's that's from you know my experience very similar to yours. And it's funny uh, the experience of not really knowing any actual Catholics and going through that process. That was similar mm-hmm. to my experience. I had read a lot. I had back in the early days of YouTube had watched a lot of different uh, lectures and these kinds of things. I had heard a lot of things, and I began to, as you say, read from like, you know actual sources about these things, and you realize how much you actually agree with on those, those those big topics you know you read you read the catechism on justification was you know wait a second actually as a as a pentecostal also pentecostal guilty uh, we I, I can agree with what the catholics are saying in the catechism we're not very far mm-hmm. apart but i thought gosh i thought it was this, this works based kind of like i had to work out my my salvation kind of thing and you, you know you you actually begin to read that and you realize that it's actually quite different than what you thought mm-hmm. it was right that's in part the genesis of this show to kind of talk about those things. And I think for our purposes today, this is a topic that the medieval church is one of those things that I, as Pentecostal, uh, going through for a history degree at the University of Waterloo up here in Canada, uh, learning under some, you know, taking some church history courses at an undergrad level, learning under people at a Catholic college, they have a mini version of the University of Toronto college system uh, at, at Waterloo. So, you know, the, the Catholic version of that, St. Jerome's, had history courses taught by Catholic professors who, in a lot of those cases, were, were telling me, telling us things that really, in hindsight, were heavily biased against the actual, you know, what the church was doing at the time and what Catholics were doing at that time. And so I had this kind of weird lens that seemed Catholic when I began to actually, you know, like you say, read from some of these sources pick up some history textbooks from from different authors you begin to see that maybe what you thought you th- thought you knew about not just the theology and and the dogma and the belief system but actually the kind of the how history unfolded in the middle ages for the catholic church and the the roots of the reformation you realize that a lot of those things that you thought you knew were really based on some pretty big misconceptions, misunderstandings, or or heavily biased in one in one certain direction, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, I I think what I want to try and do today is kind of set set the table a little bit to maybe dispel some of those ideas we have or had, and kind of try and maybe unmuddy or, or clear the waters up a little bit to give us a better framework to look at things through. Because certainly for me, once I began to understand it, wait a minute, actually. What I thought I knew about the, you know, medieval Catholicism isn't quite accurate. A bit of a different picture emerges on on what the church was doing at that time and what ordinary Catholics were doing mm-hmm. at that time. So maybe yeah. maybe to begin to ask you to set the, for a, a kind of a table setting question, maybe what was the kind of the the, the church like in the Middle Ages? Is that too broad of a question? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could uh, the church. <laughs> It, it's broad, but I can work with it here. Uh, let's jump jump to the year 1100. Uh, if you're looking at the culture of Europe, uh, it's a culture uh, dedicated 
to the Bible. Yeah. Everywhere you go, yeah. you're going to encounter the Bible. And this, of course, is a misconception about Bible about Catholics and the Bible, and they didn't, you know, pay too much attention. But um, at every level, you're going to encounter the Bible. So, I mean, you you walk into you walk into a, a cathedral, and you're an illiterate peasant. You're gonna you're gonna encounter the scenes of the Bible all over. Uh, the walls, you know, the, there's this kind of visual Bible that you're going to encounter at, at the center of every town. Um, if you are a lawyer working in the courts, you are going to look to the Bible for um, uh, either um, uh, laws or uh, an approach to law. So, for instance, uh, some of the things we take for granted in, in our legal system, like the presumption of innocence, uh, these found their rationale in the Bible and indeed in, in the Genesis story when God um, confronts Adam. And of course, God knows what Adam did in the garden, but he gives Adam the opportunity to to defend himself. And so whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an illiterate peasant, um, whatever you are, uh, your worldview is, is very much formed by this book. And so... You know, much of uh, my work is is kind of trying to draw out the riches of that all-encompassing approach to this book. And you can see some essays on my website that that uh, talk about these things more. Yeah, that's that's already a very interesting perspective, right? Because the idea, and I and I've <laughs> had other uh, guests on this show talking about this angle as well. That the idea in popular kind of culture is that the the Catholic Church had chained down the Bible so that only certain people could read it and kind of that the idea was that that was then controlled that way, right? Well, the the pushback, I think it was Steve Weidenkopf, who has some books on this topic, he said to me, "Is well, yeah, it was chained down so nobody would steal it because it was exp- it was expensive. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't I mean, you would, <laughs> if you paid fifty thousand dollars for a book, you'd probably chain it down too. Yeah. Nowadays, so. <laughs> yeah, but like you say, it, so it's a culture that's kind of permeated in in the Bible, and I, I guess you can explain this. Those illiterate peasants, like the the the, maybe the majority of people who are alive in like medieval Europe who couldn't read have access to the Bible through, you, you mentioned art, for an example, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of how, but in, that would be kind of center, central to things, right? It wouldn't be like, okay, here's a, here's a fresco over here you should look at once in a while. Th- this permeated culture. Right, and, and, and it's oral, mo- mo- so you're going to see it in a visual format, of course. The, the main interaction people are going to have with the Bible is through the liturgy, through hearing it yeah. uh, at Mass. And of course, if anyone goes to a Mass, this is one of the shocking things when I became a Catholic, is that suddenly I realized that I, I hear way more scripture in, in a Catholic service than I ever yeah. did previously. You know, on Sunday, to, um, reading from three readings, one from the Old Testament, two from the New and so on and so forth. So uh, the main interaction is going to be oral. And of course that makes sense because most people can't read. Um, but that is, that's the heart of, of the culture was the liturgy. And so it's going to be expressed at all levels going down in art in law in uh, kind of the imagination of, of the artists and what, literary artists and so on. I mean, if you read the Arthurian legends, I mean, these, uh, the, these stories too are, are saturated with, biblical imagery uh history as well there's this um everyone uh wants to to see how they fit into this story of the bible so the histories of the time um are going to work to trace back say the kings of england or or wherever else um somehow trace them back to to 
the sons of Noah or uh, some figure in the Bible. So every that's the it's the reference point for everything. Uh, the Bible is the reference point, and so this is the book uh, that that created the European civilization as we know it. Yeah, yeah, and it it wasn't as if I guess the the idea that that maybe is held by by a lot of people who haven't done the work, and I would be one of those people who kind of just pick up on what I don't know what you think you know about what what it was like back then, right? But it wasn't a, a matter of I must do this, I must go to church. This very, um, I don't know, rules-based, I guess what I'm trying to ask, you, you're doing some work on a manual for confessors, I think is pretty interesting. So that probably gives you a sneak peek into what maybe uh, people were doing and thinking at the time, what kind of sins they were creating, or what kind of the, the life was like back, you know, back then, really maybe in the, in the nitty-gritty kind of daily life of things, I, I would imagine. Was it this, you know, as is imagined by, I think, myself when before i began to really dig into this was it this kind of uh very rules based i must just do these things check these boxes you know we, we we think about this idea that now we've captured this right back then the catholic church had this was dominated by by rules and rituals and things you must do boxes you must tick very politicized church wrapped up kind of in in, in politics and in in scandal and in in wrong behavior We've recaptured that now, say, it has to be modern evangelicals since the Reformation, and now we have this relationship with Jesus, this like this relational aspect that that wasn't didn't exist back then. That was, you know, the, the, I, I don't know, the dark ages of spirituality, in a sense, is mm-hmm. I, I don't know. The, I think the question here is how do you characterize the actual kind of on the ground spiritual life of like the regular regular person yeah. in, in medieval Europe. Yeah, as some some sort of broad broad thoughts. Um, one in the Middle Ages, you you're living in a society that, in the political sphere, is is not too highly regulated. Okay, so that there's a lot of uh, uh, conflict politically. There's a lot of movement politically. Uh, there's a lot of disorder politically. There's uh, I won't say anarchy, but but there's society is not regulated to the amount that it is today. And so when you live in when you live in that situation, uh, there is a natural desire for more order, for more laws. And so they had a love of law and rules that that's hard for us to understand because we we actually live in a society that is extremely regulated. Just look at the intricacies of of your HOA, you know, agreement or, you know, uh, traffic regulations and, and all of this. And so we, we live in this hyper-regulated society. We live in it, but we pretend not to like it. And so we have this kind of natural, uh, reaction against laws. But if you're in the other situation, uh, you, you see the value of, of law and, uh, and the West in particular is known, uh, for this kind of view of things. Um, that said, <clears throat> and and not against that, but I would also say that you see in the Middle Ages uh, the, the, these heights of mysticism. If you, if you read many of the saints and their mystical experiences, they are at a depth of um, intimacy with God that that I never heard about growing up. Oh, yeah. okay. um, and and sometimes it's shocking because often it's. Uh, intimacy that we don't even think is appropriate or so on. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, especially, especially uh, some of the monks and nuns 
you know, it's at a level of complete intimacy with God that is kind of shocking to hear to our ears. Um, the point I'm trying to make though, is that those are happening often in a monastic context where there is a, a greater regulation that is embraced. Uh, but so too in our own lives and our experience. I mean, if you want to foster intimacy with, uh, with your spouse, I mean, you need a, a structure in which that intimate intimacy can strive. It can thrive. And uh, so too in the church, right? There's a structure there that we often look down upon, but it's that very structure as well that uh, yeah, yeah. It enables people to reach these heights of, of intimacy with God. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I, my, my next question, I guess, is one of the things I think is fascinating is that there are these, these deeply influential, uh, deeply fascinating medieval theological texts, right? Because I, I think one of the misunderstandings that I certainly had was that there wasn't this, this didn't exist. We, we call these times uh, from, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to my, my Pentecostal church and our, our early, you know, kind of our, our church history class, right? That, that was, that was taught there. It was pretty funny in hindsight, what was missed over and what was kind of uh, avoided in the history. But we would have seen the uh, the period of like medieval Christianity as this kind of dark time where there was nothing really being done. The, the Christians there kind of lived day to day under the Catholic Church and wrestled out of that in the Reformation and recaptured kind of Christianity that that was kind of lost in those dark ages. That's made the the popular myth that I think a lot of people may may come to church history thinking is the case and not realizing that. You know, as as a lot of your work is, is is centered around, there are these great medieval texts of rich theology that exist. Mm-hmm. So so there was <laughs> there was stuff being done then that was that was deeply you know you mentioned these these mystics you mentioned the piety of the regular ordinary Catholics on, on the ground there was actual really rigorous work being done theologically. Can we talk a bit a bit about that kind of stuff. Like what, what can we discover by looking into some of these great medieval texts? What was happening mm-hmm. at this time that maybe might shock people who think they have an idea of what was happening back then? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can start with the schools. I mean, if, if we're talking about the sure, yeah, universities yeah. today, where um, whether Protestant or Catholic or, or whatever they might be nowadays, I mean, these are a, a medieval development. And, and very much the the glossa ordinaria that I've translated is is part of that story of of the early schools, um, and so there is a, a rich intellectual life going on, and and whether that's you know the development of the universities, whether that's the development of of law, um, and a lot of the development in law that again that we take for granted was, and, and the legal principles that we take for granted was often from um, church lawyers. That, if your listeners don't know, the, the Catholic Church does have its own code of law, code of canon law, it's called. And in the Middle Ages, this was um, uh, much broader than than it is nowadays. But and so a lot of people were spending a lot of great jurists were spending their lives studying law, and in the practicing it in the church, dealing with wills and you know, whatever else. Um, and uh, it was civil lawyers that uh, often borrowed from them, you know, and, and these things often uh, survive in our law courts today. So, so much of our society, what I'm trying to say, so much of our society is yeah, yeah. Uh, an unknown uh, gift from the Middle Ages. And uh, much of what I'm trying to do is, is to show where this gift came from 
and to be thankful for this gift as well. Yeah. And I think one thing might surprise people to to realize is the gloss that you translated on Genesis, this commentary, is this commentary that uses uh, some of the church fathers, patristics, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think one of the myths that I don't know that I, that I certainly had was that the, the patristics weren't, you know, the church ignored the church fathers. The, the church began, say, based on, on the, the simple kind of kind of faith. It it grew, and there were, there were great church fathers, but that was kind of abandoned in the Middle Ages for favor of uh, the, the rule of the church in the political sphere or the suppression of the Bible and these kinds of things that, that I thought was what happened in, in the Middle Ages, these kind of so-called dark ages of theology when the Bible was kind of hidden and people didn't have access to it. And rediscovering the, the church fathers was something that maybe helped the, the early reformers to say, hey, look back here, we, we have these guys who taught these things and we kind of missed that, like, you know, pointing back to Augustine and, and Jerome and these kind of characters. But, I mean, the truth is, as I think you are, uh, your work certainly in translating these, these uh, medieval commentaries, medieval texts, those theologians at that time were using the, the church fathers and, and, mm-hmm. using, and using them quite well and quite, and quite beautifully and, and knew of them. And there was this then tradition that goes from the beginning uh, through to the medieval church, right? It's not as if we necessarily lost those church fathers and broke from that tradition that was passed down mm-hmm. from, from the apostles. Is that, is that fair to say? Right, right. Certainly fair to say. And um, what's happening with, with the Glossa Ordinaria, and if any of it's a very interesting text, there's some nice scans that uh, if you go to my website, you'll see. Um, But essentially what's going on here is that you have, you have um, the biblical text here and then this is being used in a, in a classroom setting. And so there's, there's a professor in these early schools, not universities yet, we're we're getting there, but, and not monastic schools, normally a school attached to a cathedral. And there's a master who's, who's reading through the Bible to a number of uh, students who are interested in this. And and he's reading through it very slowly. It's, it's a lecture, a lexio, in other words, which, is, which means reading in Latin. And he's reading through it. And of course, there are things that you encounter as you read through the Bible that you don't understand, words you don't understand, maybe some cultural reference that you don't understand. So as this master is reading through the Bible uh, very carefully, he's stopping every now and making um, comments. He's, he's glossing the text. This is, this is what a gloss is in this context. Anyways, um, it, it's, it's a comment on the text, a little explanation about the text. Maybe this is explaining the definition of a word. Um, or maybe, maybe the biblical text uh, is a bit confusing how to understand it. So maybe you're reading the Gospels and, and one Gospel says, you know, a, a detail about the birth of Christ, Matthew, and then Luke. Gospel says a couple other details and you're wondering how do these uh, work together or, you know, whatever other issue there, there might be. So then uh, what the master and, and the students to some degree are going to do, they're going to go to uh, to the early church fathers. They didn't put a lot of weight in their own authority. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought of themselves as the moderns. They were the moderns in the Middle Ages, the moderni, uh, and they much preferred uh, the, the authority of, of the early church fathers. So they are very carefully going back to the works of um, Augustine in particular and Jerome in particular. And, and they're going to read the commentaries of, of these early church fathers on the Bible. And uh, maybe, maybe they're in harmony. 
they give the same explanation or maybe they give different explanations of, of whatever the question might be and 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 they'll weigh out the authorities and and have a have a debate have a disputatio over how to resolve this uh, conflict in the Bible, but and this is leading to scholasticism. This process, what I just described, is leading to what we call scholasticism, um, which comes from <clears throat> uh, scola, which is the word for school, and and this is kind of the intellectual culture of the Middle Ages. Uh, but it's it's tied very much, especially in France, to the study of the Bible, um, and Italy a bit more to the study of, of law. But especially in France, this development of scholasticism is tied to to the Bible. And again, so it's the study of the Bible that's giving birth to this uh, intellectual culture of the Middle Ages. And when the reformers come along, they're, they're coming out of this culture. They are the product in many ways. They're going to answer the questions differently than, than others did, but the questions themselves were, uh, were posed in, in this culture. Yeah, yeah, that that's so fascinating because I think, and honestly, I, I think this is just I, again there there are a lot of I mean in, in all areas of, of of society there are conceptions about history that we think we understand and don't quite understand. You dig dig deeper into those things and you go, oh wait, this is not what I thought it was, right? And I guess this is one of those areas, mm-hmm. maybe more important than others because this deals with the trajectory of of the church and our faith and is the roots of a lot of conflict and division in the church. So I think in in other areas be darned, this is probably pretty important to understand mm-hmm. church history, but it's quite different than I think the narrative often is, that there was kind of this, uh, the church kind of keeping things under wraps, uh, keeping the Bible out of the hands of people, not really letting anybody kind of have a look, or certainly study it in, in depth, until, say, the Reformation kind of came along, and then the printing press made it accessible for, for lots of people to, to read this unchained kind of Bible, and began to realize, oh, wait a minute, this actually says this, the church is, was doing this wrong. But it, it sounds to me that maybe a more accurate presentation was that, no, the, like this is a movement that grew out of the church, out of these schools that were attached to cathedrals, out of studying the Bible in, in, in the tradition of the church, in the context of, of the great church fathers, in the context of, of the tradition of how the church had, had handed on these kind of things throughout time that that's right and and there's a concern here uh, uh, with the bible there's a concern here about the bible because if, if you read the bible it's clear that the bible can be used um uh for ill that they are ill interpretations i mean just think of the temptation of christ in the desert when when satan is yeah, trying yeah, to use yeah, yeah, the bible a- against christ and so they are they are very sensitive to how the bible can can be misused in that way and so, uh, again, of course, they don't, as Catholics, believe in sola scriptura. And, and so there is this uh, uh, framework established by Christ, the church, tradition, uh, to help us um, thrive from the Bible and, and to not misuse the Bible. And so certainly there's a concern about uh, misinterpretations of the Bible. And, and if you want to call that um, control, I don't know. I mean, but uh, my, my point, similar to what I was making before, is that uh, this framework uh, is something that enables us to thrive. You know, it, it's a framework yeah. like we need in life, like we a, a routine we need, a, a way of approaching that we need that enables us to thrive. And I'm a school teacher, and and I can tell you, if you want your students to thrive and, and do well, you need to provide them uh, with a routine, with a way of looking at things uh, that is consistent and, and reliable. Because if it's if it's a free for all, that's just 
is not human nature for, for us to thrive in, in that kind of setting. And so they're deeply concerned about these things. And, and so there is uh, limitations, if you will, on the Bible, certainly not to the extent that kind of the, um, is often made it out to be, but uh, there, there is certainly a concern that we, we need to be reading the Bible uh, as a community. We need to be reading the Bible um, uh, w- within the community, not just of everyone who's alive, but within the church, you know, in other words, alongside Augustine, alongside Jerome, uh, et cetera. Now, with the presentation of the Bible to the people, so right, so in the liturgy, you know, you you know, a mass today is similar in, in its structure that there's quite a bit of actually just just reading the Bible to the to the people. If the people can't read the Bible to themselves, which would be most, I think most people probably at this time wouldn't be able to actually have access to a copy of the Bible because it was expensive, right? Not because it's chained down because it's, they don't want anyone to see it. It's chained down because it's expensive. We mentioned that before until the printing press comes along and it's available in more of a mass kind of form. Mm-hmm. Would, would, would the, the priest say presenting that scripture and then I guess providing a homily to kind of elucidate that scripture, would they have the, the education to kind of pass on that tradition were they educated in seminaries that would emphasize the tradition of the church or could they more kind of free wheel things and potentially kind of steer or influence the people who are mm. hearing them the wrong way does that make sense like if if the bible if that was how people heard the bible could they have been steered wrong as is maybe often the popular idea by by priests who aren't given the bible properly does that make sense yes <laughs> If anyone wants to get maybe a, a, an image of what it was like in the medieval church, um, maybe the novels of uh, Sacred Dudes at Christian Lafrenstadter might might be the best place to turn, uh, because mass in in the Middle Ages was was very different from yeah. uh, what we're used to today. And I'm not talking here about you know the shift from Latin to the vernacular and in the 60s. I'm, I'm not talking about that, but uh, many other ways. Uh, for one, there were no seminaries till uh, the 16th century. So th- there is no school for priests. Uh, the way you would normally become a priest is in the Middle Ages, let's take the year 1100, 1200 as an example, is that there would be essentially a system of apprenticeship. You would work under a- an older priest and you would uh, be ordained through the various orders. You know, you would become a reader and an acolyte, a doorkeeper before that, and eventually subdeacon, deacon, and eventually become a priest through this through this system of what we can call apprenticeship. Now that works well. That system for teaching priests um, the rituals, the mass, the liturgy, uh, it doesn't work so well in training them in the theology and and the laws of the church. And so there grows up especially in the year 1100 onwards, there's increasing concern um, uh, by the bishops, by the Pope to have priests who are better educated. So there's, there's increasing uh, efforts made to better educate priests in theology and in the laws. And that's the, the book that I'm working on is a handbook for uh, confessors that, that's, that's trying to uh, better train priests for this. Also priests, um, Bishops, priests, bishops preached, priests did, priests did not always preach. Uh, not, I'm not just talking on a weekday, but even on a Sunday, uh, that wasn't a mandatory thing for them to do. Most of the preaching, properly speaking, is going to be done by the bishop. 
in the cathedrals. So not necessarily in your small town, maybe when he travels there. But so there's not as much preaching as we might think. There becomes an increasing desire for more preaching. And this is going to lead to a number of um, religious orders that are especially dedicated to preaching. The Dominicans, the order of preachers, Uh, the Franciscans take this role too where they would go around and, and, and preach similar to how you might have like a, a mission speaker, you know, come in a couple times a year, a special speaker to, to talk at your parish. And so there's an increasing desire for preaching, but there's probably less of it than uh, we might assume from the outset. Yeah, that's fascinating. But there, there is the, the scripture, I mean, a, a large part of the mass, right? Yes. Yes. But that too is, um, an act of worship to God. Yeah, yeah. And so the the primary um, the, the the everything in the liturgy is primarily an act of worship to God. Yeah. And so most of the the catechism, uh, the telling of the scripture is is probably going to be happening outside of mass during the homily. Yeah, if there is a homily, but not necessarily in the context of the mass. Um, and so they're going to learn some basic prayers. Uh, but most of their learning is, is probably going to be in an extra liturgical uh, situation yeah, yeah. Um, and so forth. Again, this is this tons of variety in the different countries and over time, but yeah. just to give a couple of glimpses into, into what's going on. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. And I guess the other interesting thing, okay, so this is one thing that, I mean, I think is, is there's, there's a good pushback in this area, I think. I don't know, maybe in the circles that I traveled in for a while, this was people, I thought we realized that this was maybe a misconception, but I think there's a lot more uh, uh, modern apologetics and and modern YouTube um, kind of discussions and dialogues pushing back against this idea. And and the idea that's being being pushed towards is that all these things in the middle ages kind of kind of crept into the catholic theology right so there was this kind of pure christian theology that comes from scripture comes from the bible and the church did a lot of corrupting of that in in the middle ages now i think this what's interesting is that we've already talked about how the bible was being richly studied and talked about, mm-hmm. and, and in the tradition of the church, and with the augmentation of the church fathers, but there is this this I don't know modern pushback. The, a lot of these things crept into the theology of uh, Catholic theologians at this time that didn't belong there. You know, things around around Mary, or things around purgatory, or things around, of course, indulgences is always kind of the watchword, right? That these things were accretions in this theology that was prior to this pure. Now, at the same time, I think it's interesting that, well, the, the Bible is being studied pretty intensely at these schools and then at these universities, and that it was kind of that process that, that began within the church that eventually pushed out to, to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, what can we say about the theology of the Middle Ages and the fact that this notion exists that these things began to creep into that theology that just didn't belong there or weren't there at all prior to this invention in, in, in the middle ages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, when, when God became incarnate in Christ, uh, Christ is, is God, true God. And so uh, revelation is, uh, is complete. There's nothing, there's no new, prophet there's no new uh, revelation the it, revelation was complete in christ because he was god 
uh, and certainly they had that strong conviction. Uh, our understanding of the mystery of Christ is is growing. I mean, there's a reason that history uh, continues. There's a reason that the end of the world hasn't come. God has a plan for history, and and the church is is the reason history exists. The church is uh, is for the church that history continues, and so uh, the goal is not to stop history at the year. 30 at the year 100 at the year 200 um the goal is not to to take whatever existed in the year 100 and just stay there forever there's a reason that history that time goes on and it's for the sake of the church and so we we should expect some uh not new revelations but but deeper understandings of of the mystery of crisis as we go along now, I mean, that's very, you can get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the individual ones that are often brought up in polemical situations, but uh, just to kind of lay the framework for that. Um, I will also say that in, in the Middle Ages, they had a, a deep respect for those who had gone on. And so any new uh, understanding that they might claim or, or deepening of, of of a theology, I don't I don't know the proper terminology to use here, but uh, as they viewed themselves, they were they were dwarves on the on the shoulders of yeah, giants. Yeah, yeah. And now, and this is both humble and audacious claim because it, it's humble because they see themselves as uh, not not very important in uh, comparison to to the giants of of Jerome and Augustine and so on. Um, it's humble that way, but it's also audacious because they are on their shoulders. In other words, that they are a little higher, they, they can see a little further than Augustine and Jerome did. And so they have this immense respect for the early church, but they don't see it as um, limiting in the way that uh, that Protestants or some people do where, where they're trying to recreate what happened uh, in the year 100 or or 200 or so on. I think that's really fascinating because uh, that they they saw themselves that way, right? Because then the Reformation would come along and I think, I don't know, try try and work with, with the Bible and obviously come up with a lot of novel ideas. I don't think that, that, that many would say that Reformation ideas were not novel. A lot of these things were, hadn't existed before in history that we were, we were doing. I mean, we're, we're forming new churches in many respects, right? Which is quite a novel idea. So it's interesting to hear you say that a lot of these uh, medieval Catholic kind of theologians were wrestling with these topics, respecting those who came before them and knowing kind of the context of in which they were operating. Because the, the, the pushback, I think, frequently is no... There were things invented in the Middle Ages that the Reformation had to kind of to push against. But I think, I don't know, in, in my looking back at that history, I think, and you're the, you're the expert here, not me, but <laughs> the inventions are largely in the side of the, of, the, of the Reformers. I don't think, not innovations happening in the, the, the Catholic theologians that are working within the context of the tradition and looking back at the Church Fathers and wrestling with scripture in, in in that way they weren't making major innovations in the middle ages is that safe to say yes that's safe to say um uh, again they are not identical nor would they want to be identical with the church of of the year 100 200 um you know because that's not how they see the, the 
the story of history of God's providence in history. So, so yes, there's going to be lots of differences um, uh, at a surface level. And uh, so too nowadays, I mean, I'm not trying to recreate the church as yeah, much as I love yeah. the middle ages. I'm not trying to recreate that either. I mean, there, there's a reason uh, we live when we are, and there's a reason the history has continued. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to really, you got to pick a topic and get to the nitty gritty and, sure. and, and certainly there's a lot of people who do that. And so, um, but generally speaking, when I read people in the middle ages, I, I feel at home, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, maybe I've been reading them so long, but this, <laughs> this is, these are my brothers and sisters yeah. and, and, um, that what I'm trying to say is th- there's a continuity here that I, I understand that that continuity is not always obvious at, at first look. Um, but when you spend time, you, you, you see this, this real continuity and, and it's beautiful. And yeah, that's why I love studying it to, to, to know that. Yeah. To know that yeah. these were, these were Christians. These were men of God yeah. uh, 800 years ago when they loved God as much more than, than I did. I mean, they're my brothers and sisters. And, and that's one thing to, to, kind of think of it, you know, when I study these authors of the middle ages to realize that, I mean, this is not some, this is not someone foreign to me. This yeah, is someone yeah. who belongs to the body of Christ and, and he is my brother yeah. and I am his brother. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what about a big, like, you know, a hot button issue? Like, okay, so indulgences were this thing that the medieval church did that just shows just how corrupt and terrible they were and how little, the, the church understood the Bible because clearly indulgences are something that's nowhere in the Bible that just kind of was, was made up. I, I have worked through that for myself in my own journey into the Catholic church and, and, and reading to understand the, the history of that and how it's often quite misunderstood what indulgences were and what the point of that, that system was. There were certainly you know, things, though, that the Catholic Church itself had to reform and, and knew it had to reform, and the, the Counter-Reformation existed for a reason that produced fantastic saints, mm-hmm. saints de Sales and other saints that worked, in, you know, to, to, to counterbalance from within the Church these kinds of things. But what about some of these those hot-button issues that seem to point towards a Church that didn't know its Bible or was just totally off course or had accreted mm-hmm. these things that were just didn't belong in the church, like, like indulgences. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about indulgences the other day and <laughs> You're looking for a few. And, uh, that's right. Um, uh, just talking about the nature of sin for a moment. I mean, when you, when you commit a sin, say in, in anger, you, you punch your brother, um, and you, you've committed that sin and you have repentance and, and you ask for his forgiveness. You ask for God's forgiveness and, and the sin has been forgiven, but the effects of your sin are still there. He still has that black eye that's caused by your sin, even though it's been forgiven that the effects of your sin are still there. And, and this is what indulgences are trying to do is that um, this is what they're doing is, is, is cleaning up the effects of, of your sin, the mess that you've made and in, in the beauty of God's plan is that uh, we can help each other clean up the mess of each other's sins. And, and this is ultimately what indulgences are doing. Um, and so for me, when, when I started to, to read the church about these things, it's like, 
yeah i, I don't know that just makes sense to me <laughs> what else can i say <laughs> I, I, I mean of course there's a much broader debate you know and then the typical proof texts and so on and so forth but um this was my experience when i started reading about these things it's like yeah that aligns with my experience and and with what the bible seems to be saying and and for me to understand it was was to agree with it and and there is a beauty in that too that um we can help each other in yeah. in, yeah. in in terms of uh cleaning up the messes we've made of of our lives yeah and it, and and i guess it wasn't it wasn't a system that grew up in in an, an a biblically illiterate church right you, you've already talked about the, the the church was was wrestling with scripture was studying scripture was studying scripture in the context of, of the church fathers so if something like this were, were to grow up certainly it, it could and i think in cases it was abused i think we i think that that's, that's certainly that's fairly yeah. well known <laughs> right but it wasn't this system that was invented overnight uh, by a pope or some bishops cooking up this idea in a back room in, in the Vatican somewhere, right? This was something that came out of a rich, a, a, a church studying scripture in the tradition of the church, right? Yes, and and so both out of the Bible and also out of the the longing of the heart. You know, sure, uh, yeah. Lewis Lewis talks with this. He talks about purgatory and and why even as an as an Anglican, it just kind of made sense to him because I mean, if if you were to go and meet the king of England tomorrow, uh, you would have this desire to not uh, go without first taking a bath, without first cleaning yourself up. Uh, you you have this natural sense of uh, preparation of, of uh, that that you need before you you meet someone like that, and so too with God, right? And so that that's what uh, these are doing, and what purgatory is doing is that this is um, fulfilling the natural desire of the heart as well. Um, and it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, that's going to be my answer to everything. Yeah, so. I love that. No, that's great. I love your passion. I love it's your passion too, so. for the Middle Ages. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you aren't you aren't dressed like in like a, you know as a as a you know a European peasant just to yeah. f- fully em- fully embrace it, living in a castle or something. That's that's amazing. Maybe if you could, maybe if you had enough uh, money, you, that's where you'd be. I don't know. Um, what about when the debates and those kind of things? So you, you mentioned before that the church was very careful to study scripture in the context of tradition and and approach scripture very carefully. Are there are there examples of of debates of you know of, of you know teachers at, the, at these schools of those people who are wrestling with these things, these theologians arguing about things because. I think, too, the notion is that that was just simply not done, and it took the Reformation to actually pose questions against the church to then, you know, those answers actually split the church apart and, and caused the Reformation, which recaptured this kind of lost Christianity. I mean, if, if, if that's the narrative, then you wouldn't expect to find any kind of debate within the church of the Middle Ages because that simply wasn't allowed. It, it took the Reformation to allow that space for debate to happen do, do we have examples of sure yeah so, so let's take an example of um uh whether for the forgiveness of sins whether it's sufficient to 
confess your sins directly to God or or to go to confession okay. and confess yeah, to a priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a debate, of course, that's uh, uh, part of the Reformation, at, at uh, uh, deep in the heart of the Reformation. A lot of the debates in the Reformation are not new questions. Some of them are. But a lot of these are rather uh, going back to arguments, disputes that were had a couple centuries earlier and uh, reinvigorating the dispute and, and answering um, either in the other side or or in, in some different way. So it was actually heavily debated. If you read the books of uh, actually <laughs> canon law, church law, uh, Gratian's Decretum, one of these early textbooks, it's... Um, Canon law and theology, by the way, are, are very closely related in, in the Middle Ages. So we can think of these as a theological or a canon law textbook. But in any case, if you read if you read that book, there's a long discussion about this question, whether it's sufficient to confess uh, directly to God <clears throat> or whether you need to go to a priest in, in the confessional or, or in the sacrament of confession. And Gratian has a, brings authorities to bear on either side. And he comes up with a somewhat nuanced answer, right? Because uh, the, the regular course, yes, is to confess to a priest, but there are situations like if you're on the way to the confessional and, and, and you die, a rock hits you on the head. It's like it, the desire there is sufficient. And so it's, you know, there's lots of nuance here. Um, but yes, these debates are going on and, and they are reopened. Many of these are, debates are reopened um, uh, by the reformers and answered in, in somewhat of a different way. And so, again, the, the reformers are, are coming very much, they don't come out of nowhere. They're, they're picking up on debates that were had in the school for, for a long time. And, and they're very much coming out of this environment. And, and so they're not, um, they're not foreign to the Middle Ages. They're, they're you know, they're the sons of the Middle Ages and, and you can't understand them without understanding what was what was going on in the medieval schools. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating because, again, that idea is that there wasn't that space for debate because it took the Reformation, it took, you know, say Martin Luther and potentially nailing these theses to this, you know, to a door to begin these conversations. But, like, like as you say, these grew out of the schools that already existed. They're answering questions in, in, in a different way. But even with, say, the Counter-Reformation, the, the, the Church addressed these these some of these things that the Reformation brought up. They they righted some of the or corrected some of these these courses and answered some of these questions in ways that people were able to to keep the church together, right? Versus mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of these situations where the reformers answered questions that that broke you know, away from the church. I remember reading St. Francis de Sales for the first time and his, you know, he's writing to some of the reformers saying things like, wait a second, what are you, where are you going? You can't just break off and start your own church. This, this isn't a thing that, that we do, right? And you look back at church history from the view we have now, like, you know, for me, you as a Pentecostal, you know, we Pentecostals look back at church history and go, well, of course, there's just different kinds of churches. There's Baptist Pentecostal, there's, and there's Catholic over here, but there's other things here. Right, that was that was a new thing at one time that hadn't been done before like that. Right, there was of course the, the, the that's right the schism, yeah. right? But uh, Eastern Orthodox and, and Catholic Roman Catholic schism, but those were. I mean, <laughs> it was a new thing just to start a church over here and gain followers. Right, that's right. And and part of I remember when I was becoming Catholic, and I I remember this particular moment. Um when I was thinking over all these issues and, and the question that had been introduced to me that had never occurred to me as, as a Protestant was, uh, is there 
a true church. It, yeah, yeah. Is there a church that was founded by Christ, a visible church here on earth? Is there a true church? And as soon as I admitted the question, as soon as I admitted that that was uh, a, a reasonable question to ask, the answer was pretty clear, yeah. you know, because <laughs> I mean, none of the Protestants were claiming that they weren't claiming to be a, a society that had been founded by, by Christ. I mean, I mean, you can talk about Catholic versus Orthodox and so on, but in any case, once, once that I admitted that question, it, it changed how I thought about things. And so, uh, I don't even know how I got on this topic, but in any case, <laughs> the, yeah. the true church, right? The, yeah. the true church. And the, this is what the, the Catholic church is claiming to be. And this is what gives her the authority that, I mean, Protestants look at the Catholic church and, and think that it's claiming things that shouldn't, right? The, the spiritual authority to, um, for the forgiveness of sins and the confessional to, to say that this is how the Bible should be understood and not this and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but that authority isn't, isn't, coming out of nowhere, that claim it is coming and tied to its claim that uh, they are the church founded by Christ, that there is a true church and and this is it. And once I admitted that question, I mean, you, you can only answer it. There are not many ways you can answer it. Cause again, the Protestants don't claim yeah, to, to yeah, be the yeah. true church in that sense. Yeah. And I'm curious maybe for one more take from your historical perspective, your, your, from perspective of expertise that, that you have that I do not. But I think the interesting thing for me is there, there's accusations of these innovations happening in the Middle Ages and, you know, indulgences, worship of the saints and purgatory and these different kinds of things that that are that develop around kind of unheard of before in the early church. And, and the medieval church is developing these things with no basis in the Bible, no basis in, in, in tradition, kind of out of nowhere. Okay, but then <laughs> what fascinates me is this idea of the Reformation that the, the church is just this invisible church, this group of believers, right? That suddenly we can just start a church over here and it has no connection to the, the, the church that Christ founded, but it's still, it's still a church. It still worships Jesus. And this is, the, this is the right way. And we, and you know, I saw, I'm sure you've seen that even in these churches, you know, Luther founds this this church and starts this teaching and almost immediately people disagree with him. Some of his closest, you know, c compatriots immediately are disagreeing with his theology and he is anathematizing some of his closest associates kind of, kind of quite quickly because they can't agree on things. And to me, the interesting kind of counterpoint is I don't think you see in history the the Catholic church is the one making the innovations in the middle ages. It's, it's these these reformers who are making innovations saying, actually, we can just do church kind of on our own. We can legitimately split off from this church that Christ founded and, and start this thing because we're the, we're the body of Christ, right? And over here, we're also the body of Christ and we're the body of Christ. Like that, that is an unheard of thing, I think, in, in that sense, prior to, say, the Reformation. So in my mind, I'm curious your take on this, that's the innovation, not the theology of the Catholic Church using, you know, reading scripture in the tradition of the church, in light of the church fathers, wrestling with it and, and teaching it in, in these different schools to become universities. The innovation for me isn't there. It's the idea that actually th there wasn't this kind of hierarchical church after all. We're just all kind of connected in the body of Christ as Christian believers who have the Bible in common in, in, instead. 
What do you, what do you make of that? I don't know. Is there anything in I'm kind of rambling now. I'll, I'll ramble in return. Uh, there, there is a natural um, and an appropriate place in the church for uh, variety. There are different types of spiritual life. We're not all called to this to the same spiritual life. That there is an appropriate place for a variety of uh, spiritual gifts and charisms that we're connected to. And what happens in the Protestant life is that this this variety. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna talk about theology for a moment. I'm gonna talk more about kind of uh, spirituality. And what happens in in the Protestant church is that different spiritualities. Uh, end up uh, divorcing themselves from one another. And so if you have a, uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, if you have a more of a charismatic spirituality, in order to find a home for yourself, you have to separate yourself from from a more uh, intellectual spirituality. And so the Pentecostals, you know, split off from, um, you know, you're a Pentecostal and not a Dutch Calvinist or, or an Anglican, right? Yeah. And and so all these different spiritualities become fragmented. The Catholic Church beautifully is a home where these spiritualities can can be united. And once I became Catholic, I realized the variety is that I'm not just talking about, you know, becoming a monk or becoming a married person. I'm talking about the many different kinds of monastic orders and how different they are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a, a Franciscan versus a Dominican versus a, a Benedictine versus a Carthusian. And yet all these these drastically different spiritual lives can be in unity in the Catholic Church. The reason they can be in unity and thrive, and these have been around, I mean, the Franciscans have been around 800 years and, and the Benedictines much longer. The reason they can be around is because of the things we hate most about the Catholic church, the, the, the structure yeah, yeah. and the laws and so on and so forth. You know, I, I probably made the point three, four times is that the, the structure that we have in our lives, the routine we have in our lives enables intimacy, enables love to thrive. If, if I didn't have a routine in, in my home life, my daughter would suffer my relationship with my wife would suffer if it's just, you know, do whatever you want each day, you know, wake up at seven today, wake up at 12 tomorrow and, you know, wh- whatever. I mean, this is, it's not healthy. I mean, that's okay now and then, well, but that's not healthy as yeah. where you're thinking. So I, a couple examples to, to kind of uh, um, show the unity between the mysticism and the, the institution. Uh, one of the greatest mystics of of the Middle Ages was <clears throat> uh, Francis of Assisi, Saint Francis, and uh, you know you, your readers probably your listeners probably know the story of him and his mystical experiences and, and receiving the stigmata and the excitement of his followers, uh, immense excitement and, and and in fact immensely loved by his followers so much so that there was a danger that you know, they might love him more than they love the Pope or the church and, and it, they might split off and go do their own things. There were, it, I mean, it was getting pretty intense. Um, <laughs> if you read Chesterton's biography of St. Yes, Francis, yeah, he, yeah, he really yeah. draws this out. There's this moment in, in the life of St. Francis. He's written a rule for his community, for how they're going to live. And it's a new way of life. You know, these, these wandering friars, this is not what was done before. 
you know, if you wanted to be a monk, you would go join a monastery and stay in one place. And it's a very new type of spirituality that he's bringing this love of poverty, this, uh, the mendicants, the wandering around and begging and so on. There's this moment in his life where he brings his rule, where he brings it to the Pope, to Pope Innocent III, who is the opposite of Francis, who is, <laughs> who is the lawyer Pope, who is a, a man of law and organization and so on and so forth. He is not a charismatic figure in that sense. He's, he's a, he's a, a man of great gravitas and, and, and intimidation, but he's a very different kind of man. And we see in this union and, and innocent, the third approves Pope's Francis uh, way of life. And the point I'm trying to make is that if you didn't have that union of the, of, of the mystic yeah, and the yeah, institution, yeah. Uh, both of them would suffer. You, yeah, you need both yeah, of them. Yeah. There's another example, a couple of popes later, uh, Gregory the Ninth, uh, an, another great lawyer pope, and it's said that around his 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 neck, he he held the relic. There's on a chain he he held the relic, he wore the relic of of the finger of of this famous female mystic, and I just love that image of <laughs> of this lawyer, the most boring man on the earth, yeah, and yet yeah, what yeah. what is around his 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 neck, but you know, this, this enthusiastic, charismatic, <laughs> the bone of this enthusiastic, yeah. charismatic uh, mystic. And, and so again, the, the mystic and the institution need each other. And it's, it's the beauty of the medieval church to see these things um, in harmony with each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating. Dr. Klumpenhauer, I'll say your name <laughs> properly, I think at least once in, uh, in this in show. I don't know where Klumpenhauer or whatever, what, what did I say before, Heimer or something? I, I, I don't know, I'm sorry. My, my Dutch <laughs> relations. shoemaker, by the way. <laughs> yes, yeah. My Dutch, my Dutch relations will be rolling in their graves, or those who are alive will be rolling in their eyes uh, at my absolute mis- mispronunciation of your last name, sir. But uh, we have enough in common, and we're both Canadians, so I think we're, we're willing to let these things slide, I think from one Canadian to another. Uh, listen, this has been an amazing, an awesome picture, a great discussion. I, I have enjoyed it. Hopefully listeners will enjoy this kind of tour of uh, the, the medieval ages, the middle, uh, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, I think kind of bring to light some, some issues and some ideas and, and clarifying some things that I think were, that are often uh, those, those misconceptions that kind of niggle away at what we think we know about uh, something like this. Um, where do you want to point people towards to, I mean, the, the, the glossa, is glossa, is that the right way of, of saying that? Is absolutely beautiful. Like, I don't know, I know it's not like the, the, the book for every man, and, and every person isn't going to necessarily want a copy of this, but it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, the, the, it, it's wonderful, and your work is f- fabulous in bringing that translation to us. So thank you. You have all kinds of articles, you're working other things as well. You have also other busy, another busy job as, as a teacher uh, down there in, in Texas now. I believe a little bit, a little bit That's of a ways right. from from home, uh, other side, other side of uh, yeah, the, the 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 country, other side of America from from Canada. You know, we're the top now. You're at the bottom. If that makes any sense. Well, where do you want to point people towards to maybe uh, find these things or follow more things that you are doing? And I'll put these links in the show notes. But but where can they go? Sure. I mean, ultimately, uh, you can go to my website, samuelclumpenauer.com, and, and you'll see I've linked there a number of articles I've written on on the Bible in the Middle Ages. Um, 
some popular, some some academic. Uh, yes, I got a book coming in from Emmaus, already from Emmaus Academic Press, the, the gloss, which the standard medieval Bible commentary. Uh, this is the volume on Genesis. Yeah. I, I have future volumes forthcoming, uh, Matthew probably next, and back to the Old Testament for Exodus. So you can keep an eye on, on those. Um, and yeah, you'll see my contact information on, on my website if anyone wants to reach out to me. And you'll see some links as well to other um, uh, interviews on, on different topics that I've done. But my, my website is the best place to go. Yeah, and I'll put a link to there in, in the show notes. This has been awesome. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, I want to say God bless you and the work you are doing for the church. And uh, thanks for hanging out with a fellow Canadian for, for an hour or so. And thanks to the listeners and viewers for watching and listening to this episode. Thanks so much. And, and thank you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. <laughs> Well, thank you, friends, once again, for listening to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed that discussion. I, a lot of fun. We talked for a while off the air as well, before and afterwards. We have a lot in common. Grew up in similar situations, similar places in, in the world, with similar groups of, of, not friends, but people that we that we knew, and, and places and things we knew growing up in that same time in the kind of same area. It was a lot of fun having a conversation with Dr. Samuel Klumpenhauer. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation, too. I gotta admit, I'm not, <laughs> not feeling the best I've ever felt battling a, a cold, some sickness ongoing in our family for weeks and weeks and weeks now. So some of my questions maybe are a little bit less coherent than I hoped that they would have been, but hopefully it's still an enjoyable conversation and hopefully you liked that. Let me know, please. CordialCatholic at gmail.com. We're on TikTok, on X, on Instagram at CordialCatholic, the Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and thecordialcatholic.com is our website. If you want to watch what you're hearing, uh, youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic, you can do that there. And while you're there, please take a minute to subscribe to this channel, help to try and grow the channel and reach more people with these kind of conversations. So you're subscribing to our channel on YouTube does help that to take place. So thank you. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please leave a rating or review because those also push the podcast out to more people and grow the uh, the listening base of this show. And tell a friend who you think might like hearing this conversation. Text them the link, email them the link, DM them the link and let them listen to the show because that, of course, too helps to spread this thing. And that's the whole point of this, right? To spread the message of Christ's church and how much we <laughs> love it. Thanks, guys. Pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you, too. Thanks for listening, and talk to you again next week. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.